Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Today we discuss an issue that is so much a part of our lives anymore. That's the lack of political civility and political polarization. That's something that many Americans question, and that includes our guest, Harvard University political philosopher and best-selling author Michael Sandel. Is there a way out of this political morass? Well, we'll ask him. Professor Michael Sandel joins us by phone. Professor, great to talk to you. Good to be with you, Don. Let's begin at the beginning here. <laughs> Why are politics today so so bitter and so uh, hyper-partisan? A few reasons, I think. One of them is gerrymandering, which packs uh, uh, voters of like mind into districts where it's very hard to defeat incumbents. Another is the role of money in politics, which also makes it very difficult to to, uh, to defeat incumbents or have competitive elections uh, where, where politicians have to appeal across the political spectrum. And there's also the role of the media and 24-hour uh, cable television and social media, which reinforce uh, the opinions and convictions that we have and don't do a very good job of exposing us to views different from our own. Well, isn't that our fault because we tend to go where we're comfortable and don't uh, change the channel to go from MSNBC to Fox because we're more comfortable with the uh, liberal point of view? I think it is our fault to that extent, and, and we develop bad habits, just as you say. I, I do flip the channel in part maybe because I'm a political junkie and I'm fascinated to hear the different arguments being made from different uh, ideological perspectives. I think we have to work at that, but I also would not let the media off the hook. Uh, I think that the media needs to do a much better job of giving us less in the way of shouting matches and more uh, forums for reasoned public discourse among people who disagree. They're, they're not very good. They gravitate toward the sensational. So I, I think there's a lot of responsibility there. Well, you've got to sell beer, right? Well, that's it. Uh, that's true. But, you know, I have a hunch that people actually would tune in to um, reasoned but lively, passionate debates about big questions. I don't mean about the latest scandal or sensation. Uh, I think people would be interested in that. Everywhere I go, I find a hunger for a more elevated kind of public discourse. And I think some of the media companies should, should give it a try and see whether people tune in. I, I think it could be made riveting. Going back to some of the other things you mentioned, I just wonder if it's uh, realistic to think in terms of gerrymandering going away and that money playing less of a role in politics. Uh, in gerrymandering in particular, it's the politicians who would have to change things pretty much, and they're not likely to do that if they're comfortable with where they are. It's true. The incumbent politicians always have a stake in the way things are, and the system of gerrymandering essentially provides a ticket to re-election for almost all members of Congress. And so I think the only way to change that, Don, is to uh, change the rules of gerrymandering, and this can be done on a state-by-state -state basis. I, would, I think we should consider taking it out of the hands of, of legislatures, uh, which are partisan and have figured out how to, do, how to pack districts very effectively, and experiment with independent nonpartisan uh, commissions to draw the borders of congressional districts. 
There are a few states that are looking at that and working on that now, so perhaps it will catch on. It seems to make an awful lot of sense to take it out of the hands of the politicians. There really is something wrong with the system of self-government and of democracy when um, if you're an incumbent, you're almost guaranteed a re-election to Congress. And that's true. The the re-election rate is, I think, 90-plus percent for incumbent members. And that's really not a system of self-government. I don't think it's what the the founders had in mind. Do you think term limits uh, should be uh, uh, brought into the picture? I'm not so sure that term limits would be the solution, because if you keep the districts drawn the way they are, um, you're still entrenching the, the partisan profile state by state. So I would rather go at, at uh, trying to figure out a way to... Um, draw the districts differently, and to get the big money out of politics. Yeah, how do we do that? Well, as things stand now, it might require a constitutional amendment, which would say that the right to freedom of speech um, in in the Bill of Rights uh, does not include the right to spend unlimited amounts of money um, in political campaigns, either a constitutional amendment or some creative forms of public finance options where candidates are given an attractive opportunity to uh, get some public funds, maybe uh, to uh, uh, that match funds, small amounts that they raise, um, rather than uh, just allow this unlimited flow of big money into politics. Well, that First Amendment can be pretty pesky from time to time, can't it? Well, I think it. I think it's been misread by the Supreme Court. I think the Citizens United decision, which essentially uh, invalidated the uh, campaign finance legislation that had been enacted, I think that was a terrible mistake. I think one of the most fateful Supreme Court decisions, uh, certainly in a generation, for democracy. Let's turn to the 500-pound gorilla or elephant uh, in today's political world, and that would have to be the Kavanaugh hearings and right. where that is right now. What do you make of all of that, Does, you know, starting with the, uh, the hearings themselves and the testimony the other day? One thing that strikes me listening to the testimony and, and looking at the public reaction to it is uh, listening to different people, listening to the two people, Judge Kavanaugh, and Dr. Ford, uh, people watching the same hearing, uh, drawing uh, political uh, conclusions and conclusions about who's telling the truth that almost perfectly uh, reflect uh, their prior political views. I mean, the, the views of the people watching. So it's in a way reminiscent of the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas uh, hearing. It also reminds me a little bit even of the O.J. Simpson trial. Oh. When people watched and drew radically different conclusions about who was telling the truth, and that these conclusions reflected their prior uh, political views. So it's almost as if we're operating in two different worlds, not only of political opinion, but also in the impressions we, we come away with listening to this and watching the same event. 
Isn't that a perfect example, though, of where we are politically and have been now for a couple of years uh, in terms of uh, these entrenched positions? It is. It is a reflection of that. And it, it really is a reflection also of the scarcity of reasoned public discourse uh, across those polarized lines. The, you know, the project of self-government has to be about persuading and being persuaded, uh, deliberating with fellow citizens about the common good, and in this case, about who's telling the truth. And what's dropped out of our politics in recent decades has been the activity of genuine deliberation and persuasion. It's almost as though we enter into these national spectacles, the Kavanaugh hearing being a powerful example. We go into those spectacles almost not expecting to be able to make reasoned arguments with people with whom we disagree, or not even trying to persuade anymore, simply asserting, staking out our position. And that's not so good for democracy. Yeah, the art of compromise has pretty much been lost in, the, in recent years, no question about it. Well, it's the art of compromise, but even leading up to compromise, the ability to, to argue with one another, to debate with one another, but with the possibility of persuasion being present. And I think one of the reasons we're not very good at that these days is we're not good at the art of listening. And by listening, I don't just mean hearing the words of our political uh, interlocutors, but actually listening for the convictions and the principles underlying views with which we disagree and trying to engage with them. Uh, the, the art of listening is a civic art, and it's really, it's become increasingly rare, but it's a precious thing because you can't have civic deliberation unless we can manage somehow to cultivate the art of listening. And I think that has to begin in, in schools and in colleges and universities, places you know, like, like where I teach everywhere across the country. We need a kind of civic education in listening. There is many people who said that, uh, that uh, Senator Flake the other day uh, was listening. He was listening to those women in the elevator and yeah. he was listening to his uh, fellow Senator Coombs, who was who his friend, as I understand it, and that his, by listening, his mind was probably changed that day within a period of an hour or so. That seems to be the case, and I think what makes it so striking, why it was such a, a surprising moment to people on both sides of the aisle, is that it is so rare. I think that here we have Senator Flake, who became overnight almost a kind of folk hero, at least in the confines of the hearings and the debates over Judge Kavanaugh. He became a kind of folk hero because he was displaying the kind of listening and openness to persuasion that should be commonplace in democratic public discourse, but it is so rare that he became a kind of national hero for displaying it. Oh, we'll see how long that lasts. <laughs> we have to exactly. take a break. And it really comes, comes down to the, to the three or four who have yet to make up their mind. 
Yeah, well, again, we will learn in a couple of days, I guess, if things stay as they are planned right now. I'm talking with uh, Professor Michael Sandel, Harvard University political philosopher and best-selling author. Welcome back. We're talking about civility in today's politics, and we'll continue that conversation in a moment. But first, we'll take this break. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University offering world-class education within reach. Now back to our conversation on civility in politics today with Professor Michael Sandel of Harvard. Professor, just sticking with the Kavanaugh hearing a little bit, because we are talking about civility in politics today, I was uh, curious as to your impression of uh, number one, Brett Kavanaugh's uh, rebuttal to the Dr. Ford uh, testimony from earlier in the day, and also Lindsey Graham's response to all of that. They were kind of over the top in both cases. They were, and the, uh, the Lindsey Graham intervention reflected his and some of the uh, Republicans' impatience with the, the uh, prosecutor, the, the uh, sex crimes expert prosecutor they had brought in. They kind of swept her aside, and he let forth, Lindsey Graham did, and, and uh, he, he kind of gave what became a rallying cry for the, for the strong uh, Trump supporters who... Uh, who are saying right on, who said, this is what we've been waiting for, this, this outrage. And at the same time, he confirmed all of the, the suspicions and worries of, uh, of those on the other side. As for Judge Kavanaugh's performance, I thought it was striking how he tried to deflect or evade questions about whether he was often drunk and college and so on, uh, by reciting his academic credentials. Uh, every time he was pressed on the question, was he a heavy drinker, did he ever black out, and so on, he denied he had blacked out, but when, when the questioning became sharper, he addressed it by <laughs> reciting the fact that he had worked hard in high school and college, he had been admitted to Yale College, he was then admitted to Yale Law School as if reciting a, a highly credentialed resume addresses the question about his, his drinking habits. So it was a non sequitur that he, he uh, appealed to several times, but a, a kind of revealing non sequitur, uh, the, the idea that credentials, the list of uh, one's resume, uh, impressive as it is, could be a response to questions about his drinking habits, and more broadly about his his uh, his credibility, and um, uh, I, I, I thought it was I thought it was telling. I thought it was revealing. Do you know him? I don't. I understand. I saw this morning. I believe that uh, he is not going to be teaching at Harvard. Uh, uh, in the immediate future, that students up there basically have said they don't want to uh, take a course from him. Have you heard that? Well, I've read the news accounts, uh, and the, uh, the Harvard, there were students who were saying there should be an investigation into the uh, allegations before uh, he's 
invited back to teach as he traditionally does mm. here in the winter term. But uh, in the meantime, he issued a statement uh, and wrote to law school saying that he had determined that he was no longer able to come uh, to teach that class this winter term. So he apparently himself withdrew, though perhaps in full knowledge of the protests that were gathering at the school. Uh, okay, well, thanks for clarifying that for me. Uh, one other question concerning that, then we can move on to other things, and that is many of the pundits, and you mentioned cable TV a little while ago, many of the pundits have concluded that as a result of his performance the other day, he displayed a temperament that uh, doesn't fit the Supreme Court or the bench in general. Well, I think that's, just, that's now become a serious question. You know, when the, when the uh, allegation first came out about the incident that uh, Dr. Ford um, testified about in high school, there could have been, and maybe one would even expect there to have been, a debate about to what extent the bad behavior at age 17 in high school, to what extent is it disqualifying for a Supreme Court position? But that debate really never happened because he, he doubled down, he insisted it was simply false. And so the only remaining debate was who's telling the truth, and not only about that incident, but is, is Judge Kavanaugh being fully uh, truthful about his, the extent of his drinking habits, not only in high school, but through college, and that's really come into question uh, in the last few days and since the most recent hearing. So now the entire debate really is about that, about his credibility, about whether he was fully honest with the committee or not, both on the drinking questions, the extent of it, um, which bear on the uh, underlying allegation, uh, and also in other aspects of the, the earlier part of the, the hearing. So, so now the debate, I think, really is that the senators have to decide about his honesty and credibility as much as they have to decide who's telling the truth about that incident back in high school days. Do you want to go out on a limb? Will he be confirmed? Gee, uh, <laughs> my, my hunch is that he will be, but... That's, uh, it's an uncertain hunch, but if, if I had to bet, I would bet that he will be confirmed. Yeah, basically the numbers are there. So anyway, we'll see. I, I don't mean to put you on the spot like that, but that's the question everybody's asking these days. Of course, yeah. I'd like to move on to something else now, something that uh, I, I've been noticing more and more, and I'll bet you have too, as we talk more about the civility in our political world, and that is the use of the word lie. Yeah. Never heard it before used the way it's been used in politics uh, until the last several months. Uh, I bet you haven't either. What, what do you make of the persistent use of that particular word when people are accused of not telling the truth? Well, um, not telling the truth and telling a lie are actually different. They overlap. Um, a person might not tell the truth um, uh, deliberately, knowing that it's a falsehood, that's a lie. Um, whereas uh, other times when people may not tell the truth or the full truth, they may not necessarily be uh, trying deliberately to mislead. So 
the, la- the language of lying, and this really came up uh, well before the, the Kavanaugh hearings, sure. it, with uh, newspapers and um, media outlets trying to decide how to write about President Trump. And the, the fact checkers at the Washington Post and various other places have been counting what they take to be the lies or um, uh, statements that are untrue. And they've come up, I don't know, with some three or 4,000. It's 5,000 5, now, according to a report I heard yesterday. Okay, so you're, you're ahead of me on this. So they've been counting. Now, uh, of course, whether a statement is actually a lie or whether it's simply a, um, a, an untrue statement, that there's room for parsing that. But the role of truth in politics has really come front and center since the Trump campaign, even before he was elected. Uh, politicians have always had a, a difficult relation to truth. That's in the nature of politics. But the, the scale of the um, the untruths and the lies since the 2016 campaign has been, I think, like something we haven't seen, at least not in my lifetime, in politics. And the, the question of truth in politics goes beyond those fact-checking uh, statistics, um, because really the most important truths in politics go beyond statements or misstatements of fact. They go to uh, questions of character and credibility and trust. These are the, and, and these are important civic virtues, uh, inspiring trust, being credible as a political leader or as someone engaged in, in, the, in sometimes fierce political debate. And so I think this is really the deeper toll that our recent politics, uh, that the the lying in politics um, has taken uh, in recent years, quite apart from the kind mountain, the cascade of untrue statements emanating from President Trump, is the erosion of trust. And this really goes to the heart of, of civic virtue and of democratic life. And this is exacerbated, of course, by uh, social media and, uh, you know, today's high-tech digital world. Yes, and the fact that people who are uh, attached to one or another partisan position or candidate are perfectly happy to uh, forgive or ignore um, the lack of truthfulness in politics if it serves their political cause. And I think this is a a deeper crisis of truth in politics than even the statistically measured mountain of untrue statements, because it really does go to the the heart of trust in in public life. So where do we go from here? How do we uh, make the turn, turn the corner, if you will? I think we have to... We have to change the terms of public discourse, and ideally that should be done at the level of national politics. But while we're waiting for that, and we may be waiting a very long time if we wait for the
the politicians to elevate the terms of public discourse. We have to look, I think, to civil society, uh, citizens in their communities, to find forums for a more meaningful kind of public discourse than the kind to which we've become accustomed. And, and then to insist that politicians respond in kind in that spirit. So if you look at what passes for public discourse these days, it's either narrow managerial technocratic talk, which inspires no, no one, or where passion does enter, shouting matches, ideological food fights on the floors of Congress and on cable television and on talk radio. I think well, what we lack is reasoned public argument about big questions of values, questions about justice, about, about equality and inequality, about what we owe one another as citizens. These are the big questions that people care about, but they really don't figure very directly in our public discourse. So, so the real project, I think, is to find a way to a better kind of public discourse, one that addresses values rather than avoids them, and that moves us away from the fear of scandal and sensation that so dominates public discourse and coverage of politics these days. I would think that that would have to begin uh, on a one-on-one -on -one level, perhaps within one's own family or one's own circle of friends. Uh, obviously, there are differences among those, those units as well. So how do we start on the personal level, the smaller level, if you will, to uh, make these kinds of changes? It's interesting, Don, that you mentioned families, because today um, families are riven and divided by a by their views, of, by their political views. And so that is, that is one place to start. I think we can also, uh, we should also start in schools. Um, we should revive uh, a more meaningful kind of civic education in schools and in colleges and universities and give young people uh, experience and training in debate, I don't mean forensic debate aimed at winning, but in the kind of debate where people uh, learn how to persuade and to listen and to be persuaded on big questions that matter. So I think civic education, we, we have a lot of work to do there. And then I would not let the media off the hook. I think that we need to develop forums in the media that provide examples of what this might look like where where people with differing views here's one example don remember after the florida that horrific florida shooting in the mm -hmm. high school yeah and there was this big rally in uh, florida uh, in an arena i think there were thousands of people there if i'm not mistaken and the, there were uh, young people from the school spokespersons 17 year old young man who grilled the head of the NRA or the, the representative of the NRA and Senator Rubio uh, on the gun control issue. And that 17-year-old, there were a few of them actually, was so poised and so persuasive and so effective, going up against a seasoned senator and a seasoned lobbyist. And the people in that arena 
understood that and appreciated that. And that, I think, was a glimmer. It was a democratic moment, an example of what a better kind of civic discourse might be. And here the example was being given by a 17-year-old young person. So that's why I think civic education is a big part of this and why I, I, I put a lot of my hope in the younger generation if we provide them the tools. And if they get out and vote uh, uh, this uh, this fall uh, in November and also in 2020, I would I would also point out uh, when we we're speaking of that uh, the young gentleman who was accused of being a crisis actor by the other side in this discussion. So it just doesn't stop. Right. Yeah, I've got to end it right there, uh, Professor Sandell. Thank you so much for being with being with us. Uh, I want to let folks know you're going to be in town next week. Uh, he will be lecturing at the Dew Chapel next Monday at seven o'clock. He'll discuss the question: the lost art of democracy argument. What's become of civility? The lost art of democracy, democratic argument, I should say. What's become of civility? Thank you so much, sir, for spending so much time with us. Thank you, Don. My pleasure. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU.